From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you're tuning in today for a very special episode. We're recording live today in front of an audience at our annual cookie swap here at The Civic Kitchen in San Francisco. Hello, everybody. Awesome. Great audience here. We're, we're having a wonderful cookie swap today, and there's so many beautiful cookies that people have baked, um, tempting us uh, for after this live show ends. Uh, but first, we have a wonderful show today, and we're joined in front of this live audience by a special panel of guests that I, we're going to call today the Ladies of La Cocina, um, which we're re- really thrilled about. So all of our guests today are affiliated with La Cocina, the San Francisco-based kitchen incubator that supports entrepreneurs and primarily immigrant women and women of color in starting food businesses. Located right here in San Francisco's Mission District, La Cocina, which is Spanish for the kitchen, is also, and I'm going to borrow their words here because they're they're really beautiful, an eloquent and powerful voice for social justice, inclusion, and equity for entrepreneurial women of color and recent immigrants. So earlier this year, the La Cocina team published their first cookbook, which you can see on display here, La Cocina, Recipes in Pursuit of the American Dream. It has more than 40 profiles and over 100 recipes, and the book brings the stories of La Cocina alumni to life and the recipes, their recipes, to your home kitchens. So let's meet our guests now, and we'll start next to me and move down. So um, we're going to, I like to do with these live shows, if you listen to uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I sort of like to introduce our guests like that. So I'll <laughs> say their name at the end and we can just cheer and welcome them <laughs> to Salt and Spine. Um, so right next to me, she is the deputy director of La Cocina, where she, which she joined in 2008 as its third staff member. Uh, she's helped grow the organization's influence and impact and elevate La Cocina's work on a global scale. Please help me welcome Letitia Landa. And next to Letitia, she is the chef and owner of Nyam Bai, the Cambodian restaurant that opened in Oakland to Ray Reviews uh, last year in 2018. Born in a Thailand refugee camp, her family relocated to Stockton, California when she was young, where she grew up learning to cook from her relatives. Uh, please help me welcome Night Yun. And on the end, she's the creator of Taranga, which sells juice made of baobab. I think I'm saying that right, baobab? Yep, baobab. Uh, a super fruit that we'll talk about during the show if you're not familiar with it, uh, and ice pops. She was born in Senegal and set her sights on coming to the U.S. after high school. She graduated from the University of San Francisco in marketing and international business before making the jump to food. Uh, please help me welcome Nafi Flatley. <laughs> Wonderful. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. Of course. Um, So I think we we should just start a little bit by learning a little bit more about each of you um, and how food has played a role in each of your lives. So maybe we'll start with you, Letitia, and and bring everybody else in. So your parents immigrated to the United States from Mexico. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Um, Can you talk about the role that food played in your life when you were growing up? Yeah, so both my parents are from Mexico City, and they moved to the U.S., to Austin, Texas, just before I was born. And I think for my mom, who it was really my dad who wanted to come. And for her, I think it was a real adjustment. And I think, you know, making Mexican food and um, 
frequent trips back to Mexico to visit my grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins were really a, a way to stay connected. Um, and I think, you know, eventually they thought they would go back to Mexico, but then eventually ended up staying like I was born and then my other sister was born and my other sister was born. And so we just sort of stayed. And I think though that it was really important for both my parents that we be really connected to our family there. And so I think language was a way to do that. We only spoke Spanish at home, but then food was also a way to do that. And really, you know, we would go and get pan dulce and, you know, make sure that we were, you know, connected to their culture that they had grown up with, even though we were growing up in the States. And were you interested in food as a young person, like more than just eating it? I loved cooking yeah. always. Yeah. With my mom, especially just like whenever she was in the kitchen, I would sort of be there watching. And, you know, I think as I grew helping with more and more things. Um, but yes, I've always really loved food and cooking. And I think that comes from her. And then also her mom was really into like food and cooking. So I, I often think of my grandma um, when I think of cooking too. Sure. Uh, Knight, you come from a family of refugees who came to California when you were two years old. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and how was cooking or food sort of approached in your house when you were young? Um, food was such a huge thing, huge part of our family because, um, we didn't have much. We didn't really know anyone in the community. So what my parents did, especially my mom was cooked for me and my brothers. And, um, it was a way for us to also learn more about like where our family's from and a way to connect with like the country that they fled from. And when did you start getting involved with cooking? I think I've read that you were pounding lemongrass at a pretty early age. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was pretty bored, and I was always hanging around with my mom in the kitchen just because my two brothers were always hanging out with each other, and I was alone, so I hung out with my mom in the kitchen quite often. It was just a natural... Um, it just became natural for me to help my mom out in the kitchen. Yeah. Nafi, you, um, when you were young, you wrote in the La Cocina book that your aunt gave you some advice and she told you to work outside the home. Um, otherwise you'll have to ask your husband every time you want to buy new underwear. What sort of impact did that advice have on you <laughs> as you thought about, um, how, how you would navigate the world? You know, um, just growing up in Senegal as a kid, it's, it's, a uh, for you to be able to figure out who, where you're part of or who you are, because Senegal was colonized by the French. And then a lot of times, uh, you know, the woman was, was always asked to stay home and work at home and take care of the kids, take care of the family. You know, just, just, uh, that was the role that primarily they were, they were, they were given to us. And then so for me, I was just like, that's not the kind of life I wanted to go. And then I was very, very much so influenced by American soap operas. And okay. then watching all these shows on TV, 90210, Beverly Hills, you know, <laughs> Santa Barbara, Dallas, the list goes on and on. And, you know, watching all those things. And I'm like, I want to be like those kids. I don't want to be staying home and then taking care of, you know, having someone else taking care of me. I want to take care of myself. Yeah. You know, so for, from very early on in age, you know, just being influenced by the American culture way of life or the American dream, I already start seeing myself not being able to stay in the house and go outside. Yeah. yeah. And you started cooking at a pretty young age too. Yes. I started cooking when I was seven years old. And the reason being also is it ties to the same thing that I just said is because when you are a young girl in Senegal, at a young age, they start already teaching you to be attractive to men already. So, and cooking is one of the things, okay. you know, for you to be able to, 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 find a husband that will say you are a keeper, you need to learn how to cook. You need to learn how to clean the house. You need to learn how to do dishes. You need to learn how to wash 
cloth and all those things were done by hand. And then again, watching American 90210, seeing dishwashers, seeing, you know, you know, my, uh, all these things being done. And I'm standing there and just have my phone time it. You know, I'm like, that's what I want. I don't yeah. want to have to do it myself. Right. You know? Right. So yeah, I started cooking at a very, very early age at a seven year old. And, um, and then also the reason also being, I just wanted to know all of those cultures because uh, I'm a middle child. In my family, and so middle childs usually don't have a specific, special, uh, fancy name for them. Okay. And then I wanted to find like who I was, my identity. I wanted to make a statement. I wanted to tell my family that actually I belong, and there's something special about me as well. And for me to do that, I went through food. So I used to sit next to my grandmother, my mom, and two of my aunts. Four women really influenced my life, and so I really wanted to like show people that I could do more than just. Not having a name, a special name like yeah. everybody else. Yeah. And how has your perception of America matched what you saw on all of the soap <laughs> operas you were watching? <laughs> I'm still looking for uh, David Hasselhoff. I haven't seen him. <laughs> but if you guys find him, tell him I'm looking for him. I haven't seen him. <laughs> but maybe he will want to eat the, you know, the mafia that I have in the cookbook one day. Yeah. <laughs> but sure. uh, it has really changed. It's really different. But uh, it's it's just. You have to work harder. Like when, when, when you saw it on TV, like how I was seeing it on TV, it's like in French, we say, tu ramasses l'argent dans la rue. You know, you just walk on the street and then you can find the money and there's, and then you become rich. That's in a way how the picture was pictured uh -huh. for me. But, uh, now thinking about it, I had to go to school, work really hard for it, you know, on my degree and then start working and, all those per perceptions and all those American dreams, it's really actually possible. And, and I feel like, um, it's not far off from what they are telling us when you are in the other side, but it just asks for you to do extra effort. You just need to be, you just need to know where you're heading, like your goals. You have to have a set plan. You know, sure. you want to find it on the street right there. I'm not seeing nothing <laughs> flying right there on the street right now, but you have to work for it to, sure. to get it. And then you can. Anybody can get. Anybody can live the American dream for sure. Knight, you traveled back to Cambodia for the first time in 2006. Is that right? Yes. What was that experience like of going, going back to Cambodia and you went to sort of meet some relatives, right? And learn more about food? I did. Um, the first time I went, I said I went back, but that was really my first time in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. um, it felt that I went back to Cambodia because when I got there, it felt so familiar because of the way that I grew up. I mean, I spoke Khmer growing up. That was my first primary language. Um, the food we ate was Cambodian. The way, like, you know, the furniture's in their house. We didn't really use any furniture. We sat on the floor. We ate rice with our hands. Like the food we ate was Kimbo, like Khmer food through and through. Um, and so it was very familiar when I got, when I went to Cambodia. Um, but the purpose why I went back was to learn more about my culture and also to connect with my relatives because, um, there was this yearning to learn more about my parents' past. Like they never really talked about what they went through during the uh, civil war and genocide. And so it was a way for me to reconnect. But, during that trip, I just fell so in love with the country and it was just, everything was just so, like the people were just beautiful, resilient, and there was so much to see and learn. And, um, the food that they, that I, that they had there was so familiar at the same time. And I was just thinking, like, this is like, I want to bring it back to the States. And I didn't know how when I went to the Cambodia for the first time. And I'm going to come back to both of you, Knight and Nafi, to talk about that 
jump into working in food, but Letitia, you write in the intro to the book about sort of a typical day in the La Cocina kitchen. Um, can you, of course, folks can go and read it, um, mm-hmm. go buy the book and read it, but can you sort of paint a picture for us of what a typical day looks like and what walking in you might see or hear or smell or taste? Yeah, I'm, I think that the kitchen is the heart of La Cocina, the actual kitchen itself. It's about 2,000 square feet and we can have eight businesses in there at once. And so on a typical day, you really do have flavors and people and languages from all over the world just in there kind of colliding because there's, you know, there's one area for dishes. Um, there's sort of two hot cooking lines. And so, you know, maybe someone's like making curry in the stockpot burners and then someone's making pupusas on the, uh, flat top griddle and, you know, there's music playing sort of depending on who got there first in the morning. It depends you know, <laughs> what language it's in. Um, it's usually pretty loud. Uh, you know, it's kind of chaotic actually to be, if you've been in a restaurant kitchen, you can sort of multiply that by eight, right. And sort of imagine what it feels like to have that many businesses going at once. Um, it really hums. And I think that one of the things that we, think about and talk about a lot of La Cocina is community and being an entrepreneur can be kind of a lonely thing. You know, you're, you have your own business, you sort of are really focused on it and you, you're kind of going it alone. But when you're in a shared use space, like an incubator kitchen, you have other people who are going it alone next to you. And so you get this kind of shared this kind of camaraderie and this shared experience that people are able to support one another and, you know, Hey, I forgot, you know, that I needed sugar today. Can I borrow some? And so there's, it's a really nice vibe. Um, and it's a really, you know, it's a really good energy, I think. And not without conflicts, you know, cause sometimes two people need the fryer at the same time and, and it's stressful and everybody's trying to make a living and the margins are thin and, you know, so I don't want to paint too rosy a picture, but I do, I do think that it's a pretty magical space to have, uh, one kitchen that so many different businesses use and particularly businesses with so many different cultures and so many different foods that they're making. Um, it's pretty unique in that way. Yeah. So Knight and Nafi, you both left sort of other careers or other career paths to move into working in food. Um, I know Knight, you were in nursing school. You were studying to be a nurse and Nafi, you'd been working in tech and, and marketing and tech for a while. Can you both sort of talk about what that decision was like for you and how you sort of um, reached that point of deciding that you were going to pursue food and what that, that jump was like? Well, um, I was doing, and during my clinicals, I was um, reading the vital of the patient and um, <laughs> I looked at him and I just came to this realization that I really didn't care about him whatsoever. <laughs> and, I mean, learning about it in school was one thing, but actually applying it, this was like the last final months before we had to take our test and everything. I just couldn't do it anymore. I was, I looked down, I, you know, was in scrubs, like the fluorescent lighting and everything just, you know, it just hit me. And I left the hallway after I finished with his charts and I, just realize that, you know what, this is not the career for me. Like you, you're dealing with, you know, obviously people's lives. You just can't fake the funk. And so that's when I realized I had to quit. And that same day, I actually called my mom and told her that I was, you know, I was going to quit nursing school. And to my surprise, she was actually, you know, really supportive. And, but then yet I didn't know I wanted to get into food, but I knew I wanted to go back to Cambodia. And so you traveled back to Cambodia, and that's when sort of the food piece started to come into Yeah, like all the puzzles started to come uh-huh. together when I went back to Cambodia. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
like multiple trips took that I took that made me realize that I wanted to start a Cambodian food business. And Nafi, you you sort of left your career at the same time you had your first child. Yes. Because yeah. of a, a number of things that were taking place. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I don't want to tell your story for you, so I'll let you sort of tell us what happened. But talk about that moment for you and when you sort of realized that a shift might be in order. Yes. Yeah, so um, after I uh, graduated from school, I started working and uh, I, I, I always felt like living the American dream is to have a job, wear nice suits and high heels, beautiful nails, travel all around the United States. And I was doing that. I really had that. And it was, and I wasn't married yet, but I really had that where I was like just this young that will take any flights, even if at 6 a.m. in the morning, I'll be saying, me, take me, I'll take it, I'll go. You know, my whole team, every time that there is a flight that will leave, you know, red-eye flight, they'll let me do it. And I'll, I'll say, it's fine. I, I love doing what I'm doing. So it was really fun, and I was doing it up until I got married, and then I had my first son. Things start to shift a little bit, you know, even my brain. I, I become forgetful, you know. You know, all these things start changing. Really, I start feeling that, you know, I had to do a career change or I have to really think about what do I want to do? Is this the way of life that I wanted to do? Like I want to pursue and continue and travel, although I have this son. And, um, but I couldn't do it because my son was born a little bit early. So he was four pounds, 10 ounces, okay. really tiny little baby. And, um, and so I couldn't just leave him and then travel. And the job that I had at the time, they weren't giving me that option to stay home and take care of him. I only had six weeks, like many of us back then have um and and uh and so it was just a really hard decision for me to leave him behind so i'll i'll, I'll go to work at 6 a.m and i'll come home at two and in between of course go pumping and they want these fancy super nice beautiful nursing rooms that now people i have a chance right. to have the luxury to have i used to just go in a I mean, it was a very good uh, company, but uh, I'll just go in the bathroom, sit down, pump, and and then get back to work as if nothing ever happened. So I just I just couldn't keep that going um, up until one day, I just say I couldn't fake it anymore, <laughs> just like you said. <laughs> and um, I I emailed and said that I'm not coming back. I'm gonna stay home. This child didn't ask to come to this life, and then me leaving him behind and not take care of him. And so uh, so. Living in San Francisco with one income, it's really a challenge, you know, having one child and then he needs a lot of speech, occupational and physical therapy. And so I'm just finding myself like trapped and trying to figure out what is the next thing for me. This was the American dream I always dream about, but then this is also another life that I would like to dream. I also dreamt about having kids and living that same American dream along with my kids and my family. But, um, so I turn into my mother, you know, like a lot of people do, uh, and ask her, what is next for me? You know, you paid so much money for me. I went to a private school throughout my whole entire life. I was one of the lucky girls that always went to private schools, even elementary school, kindergartens and all okay. that stuff. And so I said, I pay so much money to USF. I hope nobody here knows anybody from USF. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I paid so much money, you know, going to USF, you know. And, and then I'm like, now I have this degree. I'm sitting here. I cannot utilize all these things. What do I do? So my mom said, um, you know, you can still live the American dream. You don't have to work for people. You can still do it and work for yourself. 
But then for me, that wasn't what I was, the answer I was looking from her. You know, I was just hoping that she would say, go look for Bill Gates, maybe he'll give you a job, you know, or something like that. But then no, she said, do not work for someone. I was an entrepreneur. Your dad was an entrepreneur. You can actually f- do something yourself. And then she said, we used to make juices, energy bars. You know, we used to make all these food things at home that we will sell in the market. And that's pretty much how I brought you guys all abroad. And so I started thinking. And then while I was in school, I used to make all these dishes and all these juices and stuff. And people always liked it. And people always told me you should do this a business and I used to always say ah now this is just a way for me to integrate and actually have you guys test what Senegalese food is like I that's not you know my passion but um I, here I am in a cookbook <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. and uh, really enjoying it very much and so that's really through my mom's support and telling me really helping me finding myself again and figuring out what to do next from when I was leaving all the illusion that I had that actually working for myself could be a way of life and could be a way to support my, 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 my family and myself. Yeah. Yeah. And so you both turned to La Cocina mm-hmm. for support in launching your businesses. Can you, and well, I want to talk more about both of your businesses in a second for people who might not be as familiar with them, but what um, were the hardest parts of those early days of deciding to start a business, getting it off the ground, and how did La Cocina and the La Cocina community support or help you in that regard? I mean, for me, like, uh, it's just, you know, I went to a business school, so I should know how to start a business, right? But it wasn't the case. I had to really look into, the first thing I Googled, how to start your business in the United States. And I saw lists of, you know, lists of, like, bunch of things I had to do. I'm like, oh God, no, I don't want to do that. So I talked to my mom. I said, this is, this is not Africa. This is not like you just get out of there and then ask money here and then, then put a table and then help. I'm selling some juice. Who wants to buy? You know, it's not like that. Because I told her, I just went through a really hectic way of, I don't know if anybody of you knows how you actually do get into the United States through visa. It's, a hectic thing. Like it's a whole bunch of lists of documents that not, you don't only get a passport and a ticket and then you take a flight and then you go. You have to go through the US embassy. You have to furnish a lot of different documents. Just going through that hassle, I said, I don't want to go through this ever again. <laughs> That's why every time DMV, I have to renew my, my, my driver license. I always like, you know, think through it. It's yeah. just this thing. <laughs> it's just, I said, why did I do it for 30 years? You don't have to change. My, my husband said, your face changes. You, get older. you have to renew your visa. And then I want to make sure you are not a dangerous driver. But anyway, that's in between parentheses. But you know, just having to go through. When I saw the list of documents, I'm like, no, I'm not doing this because this is way too long of documents I have to furnish. I just went through that trying to look for a visa to come to the United States. Why Americans want so much documents every time they want something from someone? <laughs> you know, and so my mom said, it's just the way life is. It's just everything. And so I started looking and thinking about where do I start? So the first thing was to create a business plan. And online, they ask you to pay $250 to get a, you know, a draft or a template or something like that. And mm-hmm. I don't want to pay for that. And so I want to have it for free. So I start thinking and figuring out what organization that are around the area that I could really 
uh, utilized. And I, I know that San Francisco is one of the most unique cities where when it comes to immigration, I mean, I mean all this melting pot that we have, they really do support immigrants. And going to USF, I had that part in my business classes where they were talking about those kind of stuff. And I did hear about La Cucina back then, but again, I didn't think that was for me. Uh-huh. You know? And so I started thinking and figuring out and one day, one morning, I woke up, put my son in the car, start driving in the mission, looking for an organization that could maybe support me. And the first organization I went to was uh, the actual uh, com- uh, lawyer that helped me with my immigration status and things like that. And they said, go to the woman's building. Maybe there's a place that you can find more information. I went to the woman's building. They sent me to Meta. And then it was still not what I was looking for. I took classes at Meta that helped me kind of write a business plan, which I was able to save $250. (laughs) And they did it for me really nicely. And Meta introduced me to La Cucina. And then during that period of time that I was doing the class, La Cucina had this this orientation that they were doing. And then so I submitted my application and which went through a very long process of, you know, getting all the documents that you needed, recipes and all that stuff. And that's really pretty much how I got into La Cucina from this meta and looking through different uh, options in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the second part of our live show featuring some of the voices from the cookbook, We Are La Cucina. We're happy to have two La Cucina alumni on today's show, Knight Yun and Nafi Flatley. But there are dozens more featured in the pages of We Are La Cucina. As food writer John T. Edge says, this book is important. In this moment of doubt and turmoil, America needs the brilliance and brio of the women of La Cucina. And Salt and Spine friend Chris Ying calls this book a crash course in empathy, curiosity, storytelling, and community building. And that's before we even get to the recipes, which are delicious and present a virtual smorgasbord of international flavors all in one cookbook. Now, today's show is the final Salt and Spine episode for 2019, and we encourage you if you're looking for any year-end giving opportunities to seek out La Cucina's cookbook. All of the author's proceeds are going back into La Cucina to help support new and future entrepreneurs like Knight and Nafi. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, the ladies of La Cucina, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows like the one you're listening to today, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks books to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and help support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Letitia Londa, Knight Yun, and Nafi Flatley, authors of We Are La Casina. Nafi brings up, um, an, I think, an important point, Letitia, um, that you talk about the obstacles and hurdles to starting a business in the United States. And particularly with food, we see a lot of hidden entrepreneurs, right? People who are are running food businesses but may not have the resources to actually go through a lot of these processes. Mm-hmm. How uh, how has La Cocina sort of worked to support people like that? 
Yeah. So that's actually why La Cocina was born. Um, I think particularly if you think about sort of the late nineties, early two thousands here in the mission, um, it was just a really, uh, immigrant rich neighborhood. And if you came out at BART on 24th, still, if you come out at BART on 24th, if you're lucky, right? Someone's there selling tamales. There's people selling cut fruit. There's maybe a woman with churros in a baby basket. Um, and none of those businesses are formal. None of them actually are licensed or have permits or have gone through, you know, all of those different documents um, that Nafi was talking about. But there clearly is such an entrepreneurial spirit. And there's so many people who use food um, as a way to make extra money. The people who are selling snacks, like at all those schools as they're getting out, you still see it, which is pretty amazing. Um, and so La Cocina was really born because all of those people existed. All of those entrepreneurs were here, but they're, they weren't able to transition from that informal economy of just like selling on the street corner or maybe selling out of their homes to the formal economy. And when you think about economic development and business creation and job creation, there's a lot of people, including, you know, the city and foundations who want to support that kind of work. But it, particularly for the food industry, you know, you can't just write a business plan and then all of a sudden, okay, now I can be formalized, right? Like I'll go to city hall and get my permit but the big thing that you need is a kitchen and renting a kitchen is so expensive. It's really prohibitive. That's why people do it out of their home kitchens. That's why people do it informally. And that's why people are selling on the corner because yeah, you know, the health department might come and shut them down every once in a while, but it's a way to kind of get by. Right. And so La Cocina was really created to serve that population of talented entrepreneurs who have these recipes, who have these amazing products, but who aren't able to, get a store, you know, actually rent a storefront or even get a spot at a farmer's market, you know, like to, in order to sell at a farmer's market, you have to have all those licenses and permits. And so that's why the kitchen was built. That's why La Cocina as an organization exists was to serve that informal entrepreneurial economy um, and to be able to provide. And it's, if you look, if you see, right, it's, it's mostly women who are doing those sales. I think that's just cultural. Um, and so that was the way that we were, um, founded and, and the reason why we were started and still kind of who we want to serve today. And this, the deck is often stacked against particularly women, against people of color. I mean, we, I think the statistic is 73% of food businesses in the U.S. are owned by men. So that's not a question. I think that's just an important <laughs> yep. point um, that is highlighted in the book. So yeah. tonight you were accepted to work with La Cocina and you start working towards a restaurant. So you're doing pop-ups for a while. Um, and then you opened Nyambai. Can you tell us a little bit about Nyambai, the restaurant, and what sort of food you're serving there, some of the dishes, um, and also what the name means? I love the story of that. So Nyambai is a Cambodian restaurant in Fruitville, Oakland. Um, this February will be two years. The name Nyambai uh, translates to eat rice, but um, my mom would always say, Yambai, which means let's eat to all my friends that would come to the house. Like that was her way of greeting people. So that would be the first thing she would say, let's eat, let's eat, you know. So when I thought of the name for the restaurant, naturally, like the name Yambai just came up. And so fitting to the name of the restaurant, because that's how it is with the restaurant now where people come. And obviously, it's like I want them to feel like they're at home. And um the space is kind of an homage to like um, the golden era of Cambodia where you walk in, it's like 50s, 60s Cambodians pop 
music is playing, like the music I grew up listening. Um, it kind of goes with like the food that I cook. It's home style Cambodian cooking. It's the food that I grew up eating, the food I learned how to cook with my mom when I was like the little girl in the kitchen with her and also recipes that I collected when I learned um, back in Cambodia with my grandma and my aunts. Nafi, we've talked a little bit about your business, Taranga, but we, we mentioned baobab. We haven't talked about what it is, yeah. other than that it's a, a fruit high in antioxidants. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? And I think you, you grew up, um, visiting your grandparents' village too, which was surround, or which was built around a large baobab tree. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Tell us a little bit more about the fruit and how it's used. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so baobab, uh, grows in sub-Sahara Africa, all the way down to Madagascar. And then West Australia. So that's, those are the places that you can find the baobab fruit. So baobab is part of the Senegalese culture. It's uh, part, part of the everything, the everyday life of every Senegalese people. It's even part of the emblem, the stamps, everything in the, in the, in the government has, has the baobab. So it's a very sacred tree that even back then, before the colonization, before the French used to um, colonize us, uh, uh, kings and queens would be buried actually inside baobab trees. And until today, uh, when they cut some super old baobab trees, because they live up to like the oldest one they found is in Kenya. It's 6,000 years old. Wow. So they've been around as long we've been around. There's never been a plantation of baobab. So the age range is from 1,000 to 1,500. Like lately, uh, in Senegal, they are taking some baobab and replanting them in different areas. And then as they are doing that, if the trunk opens up, they'll see remains and then they'll even see gold and they'll see all kinds of stuff inside. And so that's, that's like kind of like the historic part of it. But, um, when I was growing up at my grandmother's, going to visit my grandmother's and my grandfather's and then all that, I, I used to always see the baobab all around marching and those, those, they're phenomenal. I don't know if you guys seen the baobab trees or if you know anything about the baobab. They are beautiful, beautiful trees. It's like every time you talk about Africa, it's like the main tree that shows up. If you've seen uh, the Lion King and Rafiki breaking that fruit, it's actually a real baobab fruit, but it doesn't have liquid. It's okay. actually a, it's fake. <laughs> yeah. It's like the American dream. <laughs> no, it's not fake. It's real. <laughs> but, you know, and so, um, the, 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 my tie to Baobab is because I have sickle cell anemia and the trait. And then so growing up as a young kid, my mom always was always adamant that she wants us to eat healthy. She never wanted us to take any chemicals or any medication that had side effects. I'm one of those girls that you never got a chance to go to school fully, 100%, just because when I have sickle cell trait uh, crisis, it hurts. I have aches and all that. I stay home and things like that. So my mom just was tired of doing those things. And so she started looking into what can she help us and support us? Because sickle cell, pretty much what it is, is deficiencies in nutrients and vitamins. And the more you take of those things and you live in a very nice environment, you are fine. You don't have to really worry about too much. Um, and so she started looking and digging and finding out what what are the different things that we can get. And a doctor told her that baobab was really a very good um, uh, uh, fruit that we could Add to our diet. It's a superfood. It's the king or queen of the superfoods. You know, it's a okay. high in nutrients, vitamins. It's high, it's high antioxidants. It's prebiotic, which is different from probiotics. If you guys don't know the difference, probiotics eat off of prebiotics. You have to have prebiotics with your stomach to support the probiotics that you are eating. And if you don't have a lot of probiotics, prebiotics don't drink a lot of kombucha. <laughs> drink less of it, just because. Pro- 
probiotics eat probiotics. Uh-huh. And so it created good atmosphere. So she started looking into those digging and finding out. And she found that, the, you know, right in front of us at our house in our backyard, tamarind, baobab, tiger nuts, all these things could support us uh, in, in our diet. And um, so that's how, like, really baobab uh, started being, like, something that's very uh, personal and also very important into my diet. I drink it every day. I had a cup before coming here this morning. I have it every morning, every day, all the time. And you can have a cup every day, every morning if you go to Rambo. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, so, um, yeah, so how definitely how Baobab really get to be part of my life on a daily basis. Yeah. And Nafi, you keep using the term American dream. Mm-hmm. Night and Letitia, how do you feel about the term American dream? It can be sort of a, a, a term that can feel at times warm and at times not so warm, I think, for a lot of people. Does that resonate with you? Is that something you associate with? Um, I mean, I didn't grow up with the idea of having an American dream. Like, my parents fled the country and they came to the States because... I mean, it was a way of, they had to survive somehow. And then, um, they didn't teach us, like, like, we didn't watch, I didn't watch TV growing up or anything like that. So I didn't know what the American dream was. Uh-huh. Even growing up, my, my parents never had the idea of, like, you know, you gotta pursue your dreams. You're here in America, take advantage of it or anything like that. So quite yeah. different than Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> sure. The impact of mass media, I think the difference between <laughs> the two of you. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a good question. We actually, uh, we really struggle to try to think of the right title for the cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, such a unique book in the sense that it really, we try to think of like, if you think of most cookbooks as novels, this is like a collection of short stories because every section, you know, every woman's story and then the recipes connected to it are like kind of disjointed from the others, you know, because Nafi has a recipe for mafe and a recipe for baobab. And, um, it's not like in a section on, you know, superfoods <laughs> or, <laughs> sure. you know, yeah. breakfast or whatever, you know? And so we were trying to kind of find something that could sort of somehow envelop all of these different unique perspectives and stories. Um, some of which are immigrant stories and many of which are not, you know, we, we work with a lot of people who grew up in the States, whose parents grew up in the States. And so, I think that the the reason why we chose that recipes in pursuit of the American dream was actually kind of to make a political point um, that it's not always easy um, or even sort of possible uh, and certainly not equitable, right? That access to dreaming. Um, and so the stories, I think, prove that, right? Like the, the fact that there's so many different paths that you can take, even within the food industry, and also so many different obstacles that you face and you know, we wanted to kind of speak to that complication, um, that sometimes it can be seen as like a very positive thing. You know, you come, you start your business, you're here. Um, but also some of the reason why people start food businesses is because they haven't been allowed to start other businesses, right? Or they have been discriminated against in terms of being hired in, in other industries. Um, you think of Chinese restaurants throughout the States, um, that's because of discrimination. And so we wanted to kind of make that point and we wanted to kind of have that, um, discussion within the stories and within sort of the introduction to the book, um, because it is, it is complicated. And I think that everybody who's featured in the book has a different connection and relationship to sort of thinking of themselves as American and and what their dreams are. So I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that that was the reason why we picked it is because it is a little controversial and we wanted people to read the stories with that lens of like what both like 
pride in the accomplishments, but also frustration with the limitations and with those barriers. Yeah. Both. Yeah. And when you say pick that, you mean like including it in the subtitle, exactly. including the term American dream right on the cover of yep. the book. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Caleb, the executive director actually says in the introduction that um, we hope these recipe in these recipes, you find equal parts home and discomfort, which I think sort of speaks to that tension that mm-hmm. can exist there. Mm-hmm. Um, Nafi and Knight, what message do you have for other people who might be in a similar place that you were not so long ago, right? Like maybe thinking about starting a food business um, or, and, and particularly for other women who might be interested in pursuing careers like you have done. I have um, entrepreneurs that do come to the restaurant too and ask me like, how do I start a food business? And I just would tell them, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, you have to be sure that you really want to do it because it does require a lot of hard work. But because it's your passion, I feel like if you do pursue it, it's possible. You just got to work hard. That's what I tell them. Yeah, same. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like if you if you really believe in it, and this is one something that you really want to do, you know, you will you will you will dig deep to to, to achieve it and then make sure that it happens. It has to be something that you wanted to do deep inside. You don't want to do it because of money. That's the reason why a lot of dot coms are falling. You know, you can see two people sitting down and say, I want chicken right now. There's nobody that I can order chicken from. <laughs> you look at it in your app, there's nobody. And then you're like, okay, let's start a business. We're going to make chicken. They have nothing to know. They know nothing about how to start a business, how to uh-huh. make chicken, how to make money. <laughs> so they're, 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 they're counting on having people, other people do it for them. And then in a sudden, like two years later, the, company is down and they're like what did we do wrong <laughs> i know nothing about chicken right it's <laughs> great advice i love that um are we ready for a game ready for a game awesome so we have some cards in front of you um to the side of you i haven't shuffled them so feel free to draw within but the game today that we're going to play we're going to pretend we're having a la cocina potluck um, so lots of La Cocina alumni are coming together. You're all going to bring something. So pick one vegetable, and I'm going to ask that that's, you have to bring that vegetable as part of whatever you're bringing to the potluck. So think about it for a minute, and then I don't know who wants to start, but you can each tell us what you would bring to the La Cocina potluck featuring that vegetable. Who wants to start? What do we have? <laughs> Nafi, you have cucumber, is that right? We okay. have cucumber in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> you want to draw again? <laughs> you can draw again. Okay, you go next. <laughs> well, we don't have kale in Cambodia, but... Uh, <laughs> but I, I can still make something out of kale. What, what would, would you make, make out of kale, oh, what, what would you bring? Um, I would do like a simple saute, like salted fermented beans and a lot of garlic, a little bit of soy, keep it healthy. <laughs> sure, yeah. That's a nice addition. Letitia, what did you draw? Um, I drew asparagus okay. and I would make asparagus soup, which is like, I know a terrible potluck dish because then you have to bring <laughs> bowls and spoons and like a whole lot of other things, but it's one of my favorite kinds of soup. So I think I would do that. Okay. Delicious. Yeah. Okay. Nafi, what did you draw? <laughs> beets. <laughs> okay. Are we feeling better about beets? Yes. Okay. Better. <laughs> and um, this one, I think I'm going to make this uh, uh, Lebanese flatbread sandwich. And I'm going to like chop the beets, saute them, add black pepper, salt, olive oil, bao, bao, uh-huh. and then some feta, put it 
on top, and then I'll borrow some of my cows. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. These all those all sound delicious. That was fun. Uh, thank you so much for playing our game. And Letitia Knight Naffy, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Of course, thank you. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This is our last episode of 2019. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from We Are La Cocina, Knight's Cambodian Noodle Soup, and Nafi's Mafe, the Peanut Stew. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at Patreon dot com backslash salt and spine salt and spine is proud to have storytelling partners like edible san francisco in the current issue hear from three women lenora estrada of three babes bake shop janelle st jean of pietisserie and elizabeth simon of revenge pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of women and minority owned businesses subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how san francisco eats at edible san francisco.com our show today was produced by me brian hogan stewart and madeline ford Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Today's show was recorded before our annual cookie swap. Thanks to authors Maria Ziska and Hetel Vasavada, as well as Civic Kitchen teachers Jackie, Sasha, and Francis for teaching us how to make some of your delicious cookies this year. Also, thanks to Cookbook, that's CKBK, the ultimate digital service for anyone who loves to cook and loves cookbooks, for providing promotional items for our cookie swap this year. Of course, thanks as always to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next year with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign i didn't have back problems or kids when we started my favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing DD who don't take anything too seriously right like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet we threw so much mayonnaise in there we just started a new campaign so it's a great time to jump in Or you can listen to our first level 1 all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.